Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In this episode of From the Crow's Nest, I welcome back our guest and uh, good friend, retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Jeff Fisher. He is a longtime aviator, an EW officer, served with uh, EC-130 Compass Calls as well as EA-6B Prowlers. During his time in the military, he also was a diplomatic defense official to U.S. embassies in Austria and Kosovo and at NATO Special Operations Headquarters. Uh, today, he is retired, but he is a military fiction author working on his fourth book, and I highly encourage our listeners to pick them up. With that, I'd like to welcome my guest, Colonel Fisher. It's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Hey, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, I wanted to have you back on the show. We we had you on a, a few months ago talking about you know about Ukraine and Russia and what was going on. That was about four months ago, five months ago now. Uh, we're at the about the seven-month point in time. Uh, so I thought it'd be good to have you back on, just talk a little bit about more about what we're seeing over there. A lot of activity going on, you know, with recent arms transfers and sales over uh, of U.S. weapons over to Ukraine. That has implications, and of course, a lot of that touches on our area uh, of specialty, which is electromagnetic warfare and and EMS superiority. So I wanted to bring your thoughts in on that. You know, as as our listeners know, you have a long career as an EW officer. And you are over near that area, so you're watching it very closely, what's going on. And, and uh, so I thank you for uh, being on the show again today. So just to get started, you know, recent reports have suggested that Russia seems to be reallocating some troops from southeastern portion, maybe to the south, to reinforce some of its offensives down there. Ukraine might be doing some counteroffensives or trying to exploit that reallocation of troops in the southeast region. What can you tell us, you know, about what you're seeing recently about some of that troop movement and what does it mean for kind of the the, the overall trends of, of, of the conflict over there? Yeah. So, Ken, these are great questions. You know, I'm currently writing my, my fourth book and I've been doing a lot of research. The fourth book that I'm on right now is called The Russian Puppeteer, and it, it actually is a, a fiction novel based loosely on the actual war in uh, Ukraine. So your, your questions couldn't be more timely. Kharkiv is is where the the big fighting is. That's what is, is in all the news over here in Europe right now, and and what I find fascinating is in in that the research that I've done for my book, we all in the United States have kind of talked about the electromagnetic spectrum and the electronic warfare in Ukraine as being significant, and there there is a lot of stuff, but what I'm starting to learn is that without and I'll use the term electromagnetic spectrum superiority, as well as air superiority, the battle space in Ukraine is very, very different than than what the United States has experienced going back through Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's starting to, 
display itself in, in, in other ways and, and in other battle space domains or battle spaces, if you will. An example of this is what you do not see in Ukraine is you do not see heavy lift like C-17s and C-130s resupplying forward, forward lines. And the reason is because without the ability to do electronic warfare and take out S-300s and S-400s and have air superiority in conjunction with that EW, you have a contested airspace and you're not able to bring them in. I had a fascinating discussion with a, an army colonel who just took over command of an interesting medical unit. He's now the commander of the United States Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. And we had a great talk last night because we were talking about Ukraine. And he said, what the medical field is realizing is without the ability to get rotary wing in to pick up wounded service members, that golden hour is extending. And Ukraine is not enjoying the, you know, the survival rates that the United States did uh, in Afghanistan or in Iraq. And this all goes back to electronic warfare, right? If you if you have good electronic warfare and a good electronic, good air superiority, you, you have the ability to get in and get rotary wing and, and utilize your other domains, air, land, and sea. We were able to do that in Kosovo, which is a perfect example, right? Prowlers and Compass Call and, and, and other assets were able to dominate the electronic spectrum and take out the SA-6s to take out the, uh, the other surface-to-air missile systems. In Iraq, we're able to take out the SA-2s, SA-3s, SA-6s. Ukraine presented different challenges. It wasn't air defense. It was counter-RCID, but we were eventually able to uh, to do that. I read in the news, actually, just before we talked, um, came out today that the Ukrainians on their counter-offensive have actually captured a couple pieces of Russian EW gear. I had not heard of them before. They were called RP-377-UVMILs. And I went to look it up, and it's it's basically Russia's equivalents or similar things to our counter RCID systems that would travel around on vehicles or in convoys to actually stop you know detonations of IEDs. The pictures that were posted were not full systems; they were just it almost looked like just the amplifier boxes and and stuff like that. I don't know if they have the full system, but I, I found that also intriguing that Russians would leave these types of assets behind as they were being overrun. So I think that kind of gets a little bit to the, the meat of your first question. I, I, don't, I don't know where else you, you want me to go with that. So I want to talk a little bit about what you just talked about, you know, some of the, the equipment that's left behind or that's being captured during the counteroffensive. But you mentioned the Kharkiv region is really heating up. Looking at it from a geopolitical standpoint, what is Russia trying to accomplish? I mean, I, I'm looking at a, a map here, a recent map of controlled territories and so forth. And you know, it's it's clear that they have quite a strong presence, obviously, in the south and southeast where it kind of blocks Ukraine from the Black Sea. So is there is there a access to the Black Sea and the Sea of or, uh, other other waterways in that region? Is that part of what's driving that uh, position? Uh, and, and, and how what does that mean in terms of long term, what, you know, strategic victory for Russia or Ukraine? I think um, trying to get inside Vladimir Putin's head and to understand exactly what his strategy is is a is a, uh, is a foolish man's game. But I'm I'm willing to play because I've, I've often been called a foolish man. We all know this. He he started out from the north and kind of tried to push into the capital and you know cut off the head and he didn't do very well at that. So then you know then the south he he'd been for a long time in Crimea since 2014 and then you know when you look at the uh, the oblasts uh, down in the southeast he'd been there as as well for for quite some time. The most recent offenses and and looking at Kharkiv, I think that it's far easier for him to logistically support that push 
than the push-up from the north because he had to use Belarus as a, as a staging point. And I think that that became politically tenuous and also logistically a challenge. His Navy has definitely not performed as well as he had hoped. So you're not, you're not seeing those pushes into Odessa and things like that. So I think what he's tried to do is simplify his battle space, right? Shorten those lines of logistics. The southeastern front of Ukraine, the western front of Russia, uh, is the you know is the, is the front that is easiest for him to resource. I would tell you though, if you if you wanted to talk geopolitics a little bit, Europeans are starting to become very very concerned about uh, the winter and what the the cost of oil and the availability of oil and energy is going to be. And uh, Vladimir Putin's long been known to want to always play a long game. He, ever since the wall fell in the 1990s, he's been into Transnistria in Moldova. He went to Nurgana-Karabakh between Azerbaijan and Armenia. He's He's got forces that have gone into Georgia, right? And South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And, and he, they just sit there and and he's just willing to, to wait things out. The same thing can be said for Kosovo uh, and Serbia, right? Uh, you know, he's promised Serbia for, for years to include President Vucic, that eventually Serbia will again own Kosovo. It's just a matter of time. After the 23rd year now that NATO's been there, NATO's getting tired and NATO will leave. And as soon as they leave, the plan is to to go in and take it. So I think he's willing to play a long game and force other nations to stop their support of Ukraine. You speak of the long game, obviously, with our removal of presence from Afghanistan last year. And, you know, we're not necessarily, you know, from a political standpoint, uh, ready to, to maybe take on another long game. And you're looking at some of the, you know, the way that U.S. has supported Ukrainians uh, against Russia and particularly with I think we've, we're up to about 12 billion now in uh, weapons purchases or weapons uh, transfers. You know, how long do you see this going on and, and at what level of support can U.S. sustain and its help with Ukraine. I mean, twelve billion dollars obviously sounds like a lot. I think in the in the grand scheme, it's not that much. Uh, there's room to grow in that, but certainly there's going to be a, a saturation point where it's like enough. We're not seeing the progress. So, where do you see kind of the the recent arms sales purchases? Where do you see these going, and are they having an effect or a positive effect on on uh, the conflict over there? When you hear about the effects of, of the ground to ground based missile systems, the Ukrainians like them. You know, logistics isn't isn't about a start point and an end point. It's a, it's about a process. I think the biggest problem the, that we have is not how much we're giving, but the size of the pipe to push the equipment through. We do pretty well at getting equipment across the ocean. We can get it into to Ramstein pretty easily, or other locations where we have large depots and large systems. But from there, you start you're, you're starting to see a little bit of a bottleneck, or or you and it's I think it's only going to get worse. I, I think the bottleneck is going to be a problem. We can even get the stuff into Warsaw, but the nearest airfield that's actually viable to use to get stuff into Ukraine is a an airport called Rezevov, which is down near the border and. From Rezevov, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, I'll, I'll pronounce it because I, I, I'm not uh, the best. It's R-Z-E-S-Z-O-W, Rezevzo, <laughs> okay, uh, forgive me for my Polish. But that location to get all the way to the eastern part of Ukraine is a 10-hour drive, right, <laughs> on roads that were not intended. You know, it's not a four-lane highway <laughs> all the way to, all the way across Ukraine. So there's your bottleneck. And along that 10-hour problem, you're complicated by numerous checkpoints as well because 
you're in a battle space where Ukrainians and Russians look very similar. They have very, very similar languages. They both know how to speak each other's language. So uh, at any given time, anyone traveling down the road can be a good guy or a bad guy. So you have a lot of checkpoints, slowing down the logistics process even further. So I wish the United States would give more, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily say that the the problem lies in Congress or the pol- the politicians for not pushing enough forward. There, there are other challenges in the logistics trail that need to be addressed. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. When looking at some of the recent purchases or transfers, you know, you're seeing kind of an uptick. I, I know that in August uh, there was uh, some more UAVs. There were some harm missiles included in a package. And then more recently, there's uh, 
some very highly accurate GPS-guided uh, shells or artillery systems that are sent over. It seems to be almost uh, a bit of a ramp up in some of the precision-guided munitions and 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 some of the the EW electromagnetic spectrum MSO types of capabilities. What are you seeing in terms of the trends and what we're sending over now versus earlier in the in the conflict? Yeah, so the harm missile is fascinating, right? Uh, as a guy who shot. Uh, you know, practiced and was trained on harm and, and shot harm in, in combat. You know, my, my harm was integrated into the uh, ALQ-99 system on uh, on an EA-6B, making it probably the, the, the most lethal and most capable harm, not, not from a missile perspective, but feeding information and identifying targets and, and you know, controlled by guys, guys who understand electronic warfare. Slapping an AGM-80, now congratulations to the engineers, this is awesome, right? But basically slapping an AGM-88 onto a a MiG-type aircraft, I can't imagine that you're going to be able to use too many sensors from that MiG, and you're most likely going to have to rely on the the emitter libraries that exist inside the Harm Missile Zone core library of emitters. It's not not necessarily bad. It's not the most effective use of a Harm, I, I can promise you that. But there are times, even in tactics in the United States, where we would preemptively shoot a harm, and the intent was to actually force that SAM operator on the other end to make a decision. The missile's inbound. <laughs> do you wish to leave your radar on and, and take a chance, or do you wish to turn it off? They'll need a lot of harm missiles if they want you know, to gain some kind of air supremacy or air superiority. But I like it from a fact of, you know, I, I honestly believe that Russian surface air missile system operators have kind of operated with impunity up until now. Forcing them to make some decisions and 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 turn off at certain times is a good thing, and uh, and it's starting to win back a little bit of that spectrum warfare. That's awesome. I read uh, also in an article today that you know the Ukrainians are taking some pretty significant hits and damage in and around Kharkiv. In the electronic warfare realm, one of the things that some of the soldiers have reported, and I'll, I'll share the the article with you uh, here in a little bit was that they're they're using basically commercial grade UAVs and as they're taking them off Russian soldiers are basically capturing them through electro the electronic spectrum and then flying them across the border and then eventually turning and using them against the Ukrainians so the Ukrainians don't have any any kind of encryption system on their UAVs they're not military grade so they're having challenges there you know there, there's a good and a bad example for you for both Ukraine and, and Russia so in, in talking about the, the EW systems that are going over, the, particularly the harm, they're not fully integrated. Does the use of the harm change the risk equation for Russian forces? Sure. I, I think there's going to be a lot to learn at how these operate. I mean, to be fair, there's going to be some operators who watch them come in and, and imagine that they're, they're not necessarily tracking on them and they're, they're going to die. Right. So that's a, that's that's a lesson learned. There's other guys who are going to turn them off after they start learning some of their friends die and they 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 won't necessarily turn on. You know, there's a lot of different tactics that you can use with preemptive shots. You can shoot multiple preemptive shots over a, a span of, let's say, five, 10, 15 minutes. And for a short period of time, you you can buy. Right. Because you just spent 10 missiles. You can buy a window of the electromagnetic spectrum and by definition, because there are harms, air superiority for a short amount of time. If that's enough time for you to get a couple fighters or bombers into a given area and and strike a, a key target, that's a financial choice. Was is it worth it to spend that precious resource? Because I don't I don't think you know Ukraine's to the point where they have un, unlimited harms yet. But you'd learn from that as well. How willing is Russia 
to fight through that harm missile system. If we keep doing it, are they going, are they going to build a counter to preemptive targeting? I I don't know. And that gets to the next question. What is the potential downside of this? I think Russia knows everything that they need to know about about harms, right? We, we shot them off of F4G wild weasels back in Desert Storm, not me personally, but the United States. They know the missile profile. They know the missile characteristics. I'd be shocked if they were surprised. And to be fair, you know, the United States has, has gone through a requirements process and is upgrading. Uh, last I knew, they were upgrading the, the harm to a, either a future version or another missile called Argum, which was uh, an, another advanced version. Russia will do everything it can to learn, learn the capabilities of that missile as soon as possible. And getting rid of these harms, I don't think there's going to be much that, that Russia will learn. They will learn about their capabilities against the S-300 and S-400, which uh, until recently, I don't think we've been shooting at them. But again, it's it's a limited capability, right? Because you're only using the emitter libraries located within the within the missile. It's it's not integrated into the system. So I think it would be foolhardy on the Russians' part to actually just say, hey, we understand harms against S-300s and 400s because they were shot at us. Doesn't matter if it's coming from an F-18G or an F-16CJ. It's the same thing as a MiG-29. That that, that would probably be a, a, a very bad mistake to make. One of the things that we talked about, and you raised it in your earlier answer, is there's oftentimes cascading effects when you have or don't have EMS superiority. And those some of those effects are not usually always seen, you know, in terms of medical evacuations and hospital operations and so forth that are a result of either having or not having EMS superiority. So when you look at Ukraine, uh, you know, where are we at on being able to achieve or where are they at on being able to achieve EMS superiority? What are we learning about our ability to either attain that or help our allies attain that in, in, in conflict? Yeah, I think fixing the battle space in Ukraine to get it to where we would probably want it to be is going to take years. And I think many of us would hope and pray that this does not become a, a years-long war. But, you know, it's it's disappointing to learn many lessons that we continually learn over and over again in militaries. In 2016 to 2018, I was the defense attache assigned in Kosovo. And at the time, the USERA commander was a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. And Ben Hodges, who rightly or wrongly, was frustrated at the ability to move military, ground-based military equipment around Europe. If you recall, you know, just prior to 2014, before the big Crimea invasion, we'd gotten rid of all heavy tanks and heavy assets in Ukraine. And 2014 hits in, all of a sudden Ben Hodges, as the user commander, is going to get them, get many of them back. And what he quickly finds is he can't, he can't move ground equipment through all of Europe. Freedom of movement in Europe for civilians, there's a there's a, an article called the Schengen Agreement where people don't have to get checked at borders and they can move around within the within the European Union nations. So what Ben Hodges wanted to create was called the a military Schengen, where if you were a, a EU or a NATO member, you could move tanks and trucks in support of NATO missions uh, across borders. Uh, and he made a little bit of headway on that, but what he also found was many of the bridges and 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 roads weren't stressed for AB1 Abram tanks uh, and the train tracks couldn't carry Abrams tanks. It's a big issue actually over here and it's still an issue and and you know Ben Hodges is retired. He's living in Germany and he's working for a major think tank uh, because he's committed to this and he, he's doing everything he can to try and fix it. He's also committed to uh, to helping the Ukrainians in, in the war. But that's just one more example of, of, you know, and the reason I bring that up is the example is, as an Air Force guy, I'll take a little bit of hit. You know, we said, we'll just be able to fly things everywhere. 
we'll just keep building more rotary wing. We'll build more C-17s and we'll fly everything. We don't need to move things across the land. And that, that's just not true. I'm glad you raised that point. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask you, when we talk about EMS superiority, oftentimes the conversation goes right to offensive electronic warfare, jamming operations and so forth. But you know, when you're trying to uh, project, achieve or sustain EMS superiority, there's a lot more that goes into it. We talk about it being across dot mil PF, you know, not just operations, but doctrine and leadership. And, and of course, you raised the issue of logistics is a huge piece. Yeah, I, I think I know what you're getting at. And, and it's interesting. I, I was interviewing uh, or talking to a, a Ukrainian soldier that had just come back from the, the front of the war, I want to say about two months ago. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, hey, you know, how hard is it to talk on the radios? How bad is the jamming, right? How effective is it for shutting down your comms? And his answer was, we can't talk to anybody. Everything is getting jammed. And I said, oh, okay, well, do you know who from your, because you guys have jammers too, who from your side is making sure that they're not jamming your frequencies? And how do you know that the Russians are the ones jamming you? Or how do you not know that you've set up your antennas on two different sides of a hill and you just don't have a line of sight? You know, he's not a radio guy. He's not an EW guy. He's, he's an infantry guy. And God bless him. He, he just doesn't, he didn't know the answer to that. So, you know, I, I often complained back in the day when I was an EW staff officer that, you know, we, we need to have a joint restricted frequency list and it's got to be tight and we can't be jamming each other. And, you know, and, and there'd always be mistakes, right? There'd always be fog of war and there'd always be a few mistakes, but uh, probably nothing on the level of what the Ukrainians are seeing. And, and I guess we actually, compared to Ukraine, we probably did a pretty effective job. When you talk about MISO and you talk about, you know, combined effects in the battle space, I... I really like the idea where AOC is going when they when they talk about cohesive and combined effects because it's important. But I, I pray to God that as we're talking about that, we're doing exactly what you just brought up, and that is combined effects in the battle space to include logistics, medical, things like that. How does EW support those? We're learning that EW does support them in Ukraine because without electronic spectrum superiority, there's more guys dying, sadly, in Ukraine because they have to take roads back to get medical care, and, and some of them just aren't making it. Last question, you know, to kind of pull away a little bit from uh, the topic here at hand, uh, you mentioned that early on in the episode, you're writing a new book, and I thought I wanted, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about that. You're a military fiction author. You have some great books out there. Highly encourage our listeners to, to pick them up and take a read, but you're working on a new one that's actually very relevant. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and uh, where, that's, where that's going? Sure. Yeah. And, and, and I appreciate that question. So my first book's out. It's been out for about a year. It's called Live Range. It's about a Navy SEAL that um, it all focuses around him and his friends um, basically getting out and, uh, and trying to do some good in the world as opposed to doing bad. My second book called Balkan Reprisal will be out. Uh, it'll be released October 11th. And on this book, I focused heavily on leveraging my electronic warfare history. So you're going to see Compass Call being operationally used in the war. You're going to see Commando Solo doing PSYOPs. You're going to see information operations. You're going to see EMP or uh, or laser weapons, energy weapons, and many of those types of things in a in a fictitious war that builds up between Serbia and, and Kosovo. All the same characters. So if you really want to, to understand the book, you'd have to read the first one. But book two does stand alone. Book three is called Afghan Ghosts. It was recently approved by the uh, DOD for security. So uh, it's in heavy editing right now. And then book four is called Russian Puppeteers. Like I said, and that's a book about a part of the Ukrainian war. So thanks for the question. And what is the long-term plan for the release of, of that? Are we talking next year, two years? 
No, so so my plan is, uh, like I said, Balkan Reprisal will come out October 11th. It'll be available on Amazon starting that day. Anyone who gets the book within the first week is going to get a special edition. After the first week, the, uh, the special editions will go away. And then Afghan Ghosts will probably be released around January. So both of them will come out in the next, uh, the, and that's a book basically about uh, the same team going in and um, the United States is pulled out of Afghanistan. And it's about that team going in to save some of the uh, the Afghans that had helped them while they were assigned and, and kept them alive, basically, whether they were interpreters or other other folks. So that'll come out hopefully early next year. And then mid next year, you'll see book four come out. That is all the time we have for today. I want to thank my guest. Colonel Fisher for joining me. It's it's always great to have you on the show. Hope to have you on again soon. And I will see you probably in in a couple months down at the uh, AOC Symposium here in Washington, D.C. So looking forward to catching up with you in person. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, Ken, thank you so much. I I truly do appreciate it. It's always great to talk to you. And and, uh, the AOC listeners are I love to death because, you know, their their knowledge of EW is is something that you don't find in the average crowd. I do look forward to seeing you at the uh, at the AOC convention. And if anyone does buy my book and they find me, feel free to hit me up for a, a signature. Happy to do it. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guest, retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Jeff Fisher, for joining me. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please feel free to take a few moments to share your thoughts and recommendations on the show. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.